This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. The one thing that makes TAC work so well is that we call each other out. You know, if we are doing something harmful, we call each other out on it. If we're not acting responsibly, we call each other out on it. And it doesn't happen often because we're having these conversations before we even get to the point where we can possibly do something harmful. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Hey, everyone. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer podcast brought to you by Libro FM. I'd like to welcome you to the show today. Uh, we have a great conversation with Jamika Scott. Jamika is an activist and organizer in the city of Tacoma. Uh, if you recognize her name besides her activism work, she's a past show guest. She came on and talked with us about the book, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, and also came on and gave movie recommendations with Katie Evans. Uh, we're going to talk about her activism and her story today. Jamika has found herself kind of at the center of her own advocacy work and the fight against law enforcement in Tacoma. Jamika is an outspoken advocate uh, and a member of TAC, which is a local organizing group. And she was targeted by Tacoma police in January and arrested uh, at, at a demonstration. And we're going to talk about that and a bunch of other things. One of the things that kind of is undergirding this conversation is that like I'm actually helping or actually looking for help from Jamaica and processing kind of the thing, things that are happening right now. We're talking, uh, full disclosure, on May the 6th, which means it's the four-month anniversary of the right-wing coup against the U.S. government where uh, essentially there was an attempt to overturn our election. We're also talking about two weeks after the convention of Derek, conviction of Derek Chauvin for murdering George Floyd. And we're also talking mm, in this interstitiary period where we're waiting for uh, a result of the investigation by the state attorney general's office and whether the police that killed Manuel Ellis will be charged. And so all those things are cascading in my head right now. And I brought Jamika on, had her on the show to help me kind of process that. And you can hear that like I'm struggling with a lot of that too. But before we get to Jamaica, really fast, I want to talk about uh, the book that I mentioned a couple episodes back. So I talked when, on the episode with Melissa Santos about how I'm reading a book called The Fourth Turning or listening to it on Libro FM. Uh, the Fourth Turning is the – it's a history of the United States but looking at generational change and looking at these kind of like 80-year periods of time. And essentially the 80-year periods of time line up alongside major events because like we work in cycles. Uh, the book uses the term seculum to talk about an 80-year period of life, but that's stupid. I'm not going to use that. But basically, the gist is, is that American society has an implosion every 80 years. From the founding through the Civil War, 80 years-ish, because it's math. It's like, sorry, it's history, not math, right? So from the Civil War to the Great Depression, World War II, about 80 years. From the Great Depression, World War II to now, about 80 years. And so essentially, the book posits that we live in these windows of crisis every 80 years. And so essentially, like we're right now in a 20-year window of crisis that arguably begins with financial collapse in 2008 and then in theory, theory runs through 2028. The one thing I forgot to mention about the book is this mf -er was written in 1997. 
And so there are so many occasions in the book where they're just calling their shot. There's this one part where they're like, they list off basically like five crisis things that could hit the United States. And then they say that like, basically none of these are necessarily likely to happen. And like four of the five have happened. Like you have a pandemic, you have a financial crisis, you have a massive terrorist attack. Like it's, it's just, the book is so prescient. Uh, if you have read The Fourth Turning, shoot me an email. If you've read The Fourth Turning, like I, I would just love to hear your thoughts. Uh, my email address is nerdfarmpod at gmail.com. All right, uh, enough of that. Let's get to our conversation with Jamika. Hey, Jamika, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? You know, I'm doing all right. It's, it's so interesting. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, there's a confluence and a convergence of a bunch of things kind of happening all at once. And I want to just, I, I feel like I need to sit down with somebody who sees the world the way that I do to tell me either you're right to be concerned about things you're seeing or no, you're, 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 you're crazy, Nathan. And I'll take either one at the end of this. All right. Um, for just a reference point, we're having this conversation on May the 6th, which means we're talking on the four-month anniversary of the Capitol coup where right-wingers stormed the U.S. Capitol and tried to displace or tried to overturn a U.S. election and tried to hang members of the United States Senate. I'm just wondering, I remember my experience with that. Like for me, it was happening overnight. I was texting with folks who I know who uh, work in D.C. and live in D.C. It was a very kind of surreal experience. Uh, what was your experience with the Capitol coup and how, what did you learn? Of, well, let's, let's start with that. What was your experience with the Capitol coup? Um, I just, you know, it's what my partner always watches the news. Like, it's just kind of constantly on in the background. I tend to block it out most of the times. But um, waking up and, like, seeing what was happening, first it was like, of course, this is what they're doing. And, of course, they're being allowed to make it as far as they have. Uh, so it was just very interesting to watch considering just how protests had been treated, you know, the whole year prior. Um, so that was kind of like my first initial response. It wasn't even, it wasn't until later, honestly, that I was like, that was a terrorist attack. Like, that's one of those moments where people are going to have this conversation. Like, where were you at? What were you doing? How did you feel? Um, and I think especially for people who were like in and around DC at the time, but just watching it on the news, it was just, yeah, it kind of left me flabbergasted, but at the same time, not surprised at all. So, yeah. You, you mentioned exactly the part that I'm thinking about. So you're involved in, you've been involved in organizing and demonstrations against law enforcement practices in Tacoma and, and in the Northwest. In particular, watching the way that these mainly white, mainly male uh, right-wingers were treated by law enforcement. What did that teach you about America, about policing, about like, about the work that we're trying to do right now? It didn't teach me anything that I didn't already know. I don't think, mm -hmm. I think it was very interesting, um, to see police still wanting to give a predominantly, well, I think almost exclusively white group of protesters, uh, the liberties that they don't give black protesters and protesters of color um, or people who are protesting or rallying against state sanctioned violence. 
they didn't, they would still give them protections that they don't give to other people, even though they are actively harming them. It was very interesting. Like, I don't know if I'm in a situation where I'm being attacked, it doesn't matter necessarily what your beliefs are. It would be my main priority to keep myself safe and, and do my duty to keep whatever it is that I'm protecting safe. And they kind of just stepped aside. And I know that now, like, there's all these things coming out about like, oh, you know, well, we kind of knew something was happening, but we don't really have the authority to do anything preemptively. And, um, you know, like, we just didn't have the setup there. And, you know, there's a whole list of people who failed in their duty that day. But it was just very interesting to see, like, just, it still kind of causes me to lose my words, but it was just very interesting to see how policing would still protect white people um, over property and in the face of harm to themselves. It was just, it was just a very weird, surreal thing to be watching. Yeah. I've always struggled with like what I'm going to call for lack of better language, the situational restraints that law enforcement can show. And so like, we see these videos where, and oftentimes it's like overseas, but like where law enforcement officers can disarm a knife-wielding suspect. Uh, we see that there's these mass shooters who are taken alive. So then we see basically a situation in which people invade the capital of the United States after erecting a gallows uh, with the intention of like murdering people and going into members of Congress's offices. And then they get like escorted out. And for me, like, I... I I still don't think I've come to grips with how much we, we saw in January is just a validation of everything that I know about policing, but then also how many folks still don't get it. And yeah. like for, for me, that was a moment where it was like, if you don't get this struggle now, then you're never going to get it because you'll have no, you'll never have a more clear demonstration of how there's a double standard for the way that we're treated and the way that they're treated. I, I, I wonder, have there, have you had conversations with folks at home? Uh, I'm one about white folks in particular who like in talking through this, aren't getting it still or, 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 or what's the response I guess that people have had toward you when you talk about this? I'm going to be real honest. I don't like to talk about it. And yeah. I, um, so honestly, I think I've, I've mostly talked about it with people who I feel comfortable knowing that their opinion will be similar to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not necessarily because I'm looking for a similar opinion, but probably more because I'm not looking to fight about it. Mm-hmm. Like what happened on January 6th was a terrorist attack. It was wrong. It was a display of how unfair policing is, how, and just how like counterintuitive it is to anybody's self-preservation. Like, how are you protecting these people? How are you showing up in a uniform every day to protect people like this? And I know that that, you know, January 6th doesn't happen every day, but cops show up with that attitude every day that when it comes to white people, when it comes to people who think blue lives matter when it comes to people who are conservative and want their guns, when it comes to people who think, you know, all lives matter and black people need to be grateful. 
how do you how do you show up every day and protect that in the face of your own safety, sanity, and you know, like that? It doesn't make any sense to me. So it's hard for me to have that conversation um, with somebody who who yeah can't even get to that level of like understanding the base issues that are wrong. Like, yeah, if you don't get that what happened on January 6th was something that should never happen again and probably should have never happened in the first place, there's so many things that we're not even ready to talk about right now. So I, yeah, I just try to, I try not to talk about it, but when I do, I talk about it with people who I know I can have a safe conversation with. Yeah, no, I I nod at that because something, so a place where I've found myself is, is like, for me, this is about my mental health and my like personal safety as a black American that like there are some folks who like I won't have these conversations with because like I either a know what they're going to say and I don't feel like fighting with them, like you said, or also b I don't trust what they're going to say. And I don't I don't feel hmm, I want to word this the right way. My circle has gotten smaller in recent years. Uh, and that's been by design because if you don't have my back in the struggles that like my community is involved with, then like I, I don't have space for you in my space. And I, I've been avoiding these conversations with a lot of white folks because like it, it, to me, it's just so patently obvious. Let me let me in fact, let me let me get out of January before we both freak out. Um, so speaking of like news that happens back in the States that keeps me awake at night, uh, we're having this conversation basically like two weeks after the George Floyd verdict was, was rendered. What did, is, is that, is that the verdict that you expected? And what was that like for you that evening? Or I guess it was evening here that, that day. It was the verdict, the optimistic part of me uh, mm-hmm. expected because we've been let down so many times by the government, by the state, by the justice system, I wasn't sure what to expect. I, you know, I was like, this, honestly, the way that this defense lawyer is speaking as though he's telling the truth, um, the way he's speaking about George Floyd as if he was just, you know, something to be dealt with, um, I was like, I don't know. That's the sentiment of a lot of people. And I wasn't there during jury selection. I don't know who's sitting on that jury. And, and you know, all it took was for one of them to agree with the defense. So um, it's definitely what I was hoping for. And at the end of the day, like, even once we got it, I was still kind of like, but what did we really get, you know? Mm-hmm. It'd be great that if a, if a guilty verdict... Um, brought back the person that it's, you know, that the act took away, but it doesn't. So at the end of the day, George Floyd still isn't here. There's still a bunch of people who were traumatized by the event. There's a family missing a father and a son. And, and there's this collective trauma that we've gone through as a country, as black folks, as people who care about justice, um, just to see this play out, like justice would be George Floyd, George Floyd still being here. Uh, justice would have been Derek Chauvin just pleading guilty and and saving us all this time of a trial. But so I don't know, like it was it wasn't even bittersweet. It was just kind of like, yep, there it is. Yeah. Now what? 
I, I'm often struck by the way that liberals and moderates in American politics like to like prematurely call for turning points. So like when Barack Obama got elected, they're like, oh, this is where post-racial society is, this is the end of racism in America. I'm like, uh, learn there, huh? Psych. Um, when, when Joe Biden got elected, it was like, oh, this is the, the turning point. We, we, we beat Trump and the, all the, the nonsense of Trumpdom. Psych. Also, again, I, I saw a lot of celebrations of, of this verdict. And like, for me, it's like if, if you don't, if this man doesn't get convicted and found guilty with this much evidence, like nobody does. But then the flip side is, is the only reason why he was convicted is because somebody recorded it. And there's lots of folks in our community and lots of folks like Manuelos who have been killed in a very similar way. But there's no video evidence. And the, the officers are not only like not in jail, but still like working their jobs. Mm -hmm. I, Jamaica, I, I, I wonder, you are somebody who, well, actually, let me back up. Earlier this year, I read the, uh, the book by Stacey Abrams. And one of the things that like really occurred to me is that like America likes to identify like the Negro of the moment and be like, oh, this is the hero person who has all the ideas and we're going to, you know, we're going to identify with them and listen to them and, and, but then they discount the people who are doing that same work in their own communities. Yes. In many ways, I, I see you and I see my dear son, Kamau, and a few other folks who are, who are, who are doing this work as, as being the Abrams in our communities and, and doing that work and advocating for that work. I'm curious, why have you decided that being an activist is something that, because you, you don't have to do this. You don't have to get harassed by police. You could just go to brunch. Like, why have you decided this is something that you, that you want to take on? I, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. I have to like, um, you know, I mean, I guess it's just because there are people who go out and do what they think is going to help advance equity and justice and accountability in our communities. Um, and at the time that I started organizing, well, when I first started organizing, I didn't even really know what that what it was. I had no idea what a community organizer was, did not consider myself one. Um, and but what I did see happening, I didn't identify with it in any way. There was I, I saw people who were in politics. I saw, uh, you know, sometimes I would hear people from churches or uh, from, you know, environmentalist movements or something. It just, but I didn't feel represented. It didn't feel authentic to me. It didn't feel um, like a space where I was safe to speak out in the way that I wanted to um, and to address the issues that I really wanted to address. Like when I first started organizing with the Tacoma Action Collective, when we, well, first of all, we started organizing as ourselves and had to become the Tacoma Action Collective uh, just because of various people who did not agree with what we were doing. Um, and so, but like people still weren't even saying Black Lives Matter. Like Black people in Tacoma, Black politicians were fearful to say out loud, Black Lives Matter. And there were, you know, people still felt it was divisive. So I just was like, you know, it's hard for me to get involved with something who doesn't, who can't just say it, who can't just say Black Lives Matter um, and then act accordingly. So I just felt like it was important, one, to give people who, who didn't feel represented in any type of movement locally a voice. 
And I keep doing it just because the work isn't done. And I, I don't know that it ever will be. And maybe there's a time when I'll decide like, I'm too old for this and I got to go do some living that's not in a organizing capacity. But um, there's just a lot of work to be done. And I was definitely burnt out. Um, and honestly, like thinking about my work with the Tacoma Action Collective as like, is this, it takes up so much of my time. It's not leaving me space to be creative. I feel very pigeonholed into just being an, an organizer. And I almost like started to resent the title of being an organizer because I'm not just an organizer. Um, it's not even like the main piece of my identity. And sometimes I don't even mention it to people like, I want to make film. I want to write. I want to be unbothered and, and go to brunch and have mimosas and <laughs> hang out with my friends. But, um, you know, my friends and I, we go to brunch and we also organize. And, um, but then when Manuel Ellis's sister Monet, when she came to us, uh, it just, you know, it, nobody was believing her about what happened to her brother. Mm. Nobody, not local politicians, not, uh, people who had the authority to look further into it, whether it was police or the medical examiner, um, whoever, it just, nobody was believing her. And as a black woman who has not been believed herself, like it was, it felt like my duty to be there for her. It felt like our duty to protect her, to stand alongside of her and to hear what she had to say and tell us what she wanted to do to fight for her brother and then to do that with her and to support her in, in any steps she wanted to take to get justice for her brother and to bring peace and closure to her family. So, um, you know, and it's been a very, very long year and we are still waiting to learn um, what will happen with the officers who killed Manuel Ellis. But I wouldn't, as painful as it is, as heavy as it is, as tiring it as, as it is, I really can't see myself being anywhere else doing any other thing than what I'm doing right now. Bet, bet. It's, it's funny because the bio, so I was looking back at the notes from the first time you came on the show. Uh, the bio that Kat wrote for you was activist, mimosa lover, and filmmaker. And so it's fascinating that you basically said those are the things that you miss doing and this is taking, and this work is taking you away from. Um, yeah, I, one of the things that I appreciate about you and your public presences is that like you are about this justice work, but also like you are a creative person, like you are a filmmaker, like you do tell stories. And like, honestly, like I, I feel that you are somebody who works as a bridge between communities in a way that like I try to, but don't always, uh, always succeed at. And so if, if nobody's told you this, like recently, like the work that you do is essential and I appreciate you greatly for it. Thank um, you. You, you mentioned the killing of Manuel Ellis, and that, that's a big chunk of the conversation we're going to have today. One of the things I'm struck by is, uh, so Derek Chauvin has now been convicted, and George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. So in under a year, we have him charged, we have him tried, and we have a conviction. Manuel Ellis was killed before George Floyd was in March. This is the Tacoma-centric show, and most folks in Tacoma like know the story of Manuelis, but also like our story goes, our, our show reaches outside of Tacoma for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, if if you don't mind, can you just walk us through what happened 
and what has happened with the Ellis investigation. Like, I don't, I don't want to recapitulate his death because that's traumatizing, but just with the investigation, what has happened thus far? Yeah. So, I mean, initially after, um, you know, after Manuel died or was killed rather, um, that almost was just going to be it. They were just going to say he um, had excited delirium um, and then he had some type of cardiac episode as we tried to subdue him. Um, But like the medical examiner ruled it a homicide pretty quickly. I mean, in the scheme of how long it takes to come back with like, you know, official findings from medical examiner. But um, they didn't really tell anybody. They didn't tell Manuel's family. They um, didn't really, in fact, they, the police or whomever reports out to the Tacoma News Tribune specifically said that it was excited delirium and nothing else. Um, and so if, if, if you trust the newspaper, if you trust the sources where they're, from which they're getting their information, then you probably looked at this article and you're like, oh, you know, shoot, a guy was acting crazy and uh, now he's dead. Well, that's policing. That's, you know, whatever. And you might've just gone on about it. Or you might've been like, well, there's not enough, there's not a lot of information here and you just might've moved on. So, um, and that's what a lot of people did. But Monet was very adamant about finding somebody who would listen to her about her brother. And finally, one of the reporters at the News Tribune was able to pull those records and did see that the medical examiner, and this is like in late May. So it's been Mm -hmm. a few months, um, late May of 2020, that is. Um, And the reporter was like, did you know that your brother's death was ruled a homicide? Um, And so from there, you know, it just, shortly after that, um, with the Tacoma Action Collective, we went down and sat on the steps of the Capitol and we were like, there needs to be an independent investigation and we're not leaving until somebody in the attorney general's office tells us that there's going to be an independent investigation. Um, and so it was, you know, people came out from the AG's office. They talked to us. I, and I say us cause it's tack. I actually wasn't there at the time I was in Texas at my grandma's funeral, but I was still, um, you know, running some social media stuff. But so we had people come, they had people come out and talk to them. Um, they didn't know that a Pierce County Sheriff's officer had been involved. They didn't know that a Washington state patrolman had been involved. Um, And so initially they were like, yeah, let's do an independent investigation. We'll pass it to the sheriff's office. Then they realized that the sheriff's office was involved. So they had to pass it eventually. Finally, they took the the case away from them. The attorney general appointed Washington State Patrol to do this independent investigation. Um, It was a very long journey. while that was happening, Monet's uh, legal team was also doing their own investigating. Um, it was Monet's lawyers who were able to help track down witnesses. It was the Tacoma Action Collective putting out information about this that allowed a couple witnesses to reach out to us saying like, hey, I was there that night. I grabbed a video because it felt so like awful, but I just didn't realize the guy had died because I never saw anything about it in the newspaper. So there was video of, of Manuel Ellis um, being killed from two separate angles. And actually there was another video that had been taken uh, from a ring camera on somebody's porch. And you couldn't necessarily see as much as you could in the other cell phone videos, but 
you could hear a lot of it. You could hear all of what was happening. And one of the one of the wildest things that often gets left out is that as Manuel Ellis is saying, I can't breathe, sir, I can't breathe. The officer tells him, and excuse my language, to shut the F up. So there's so much. And then before all this comes out, you had Ed Troyer, you know, when he was still in his spokesman duties, was saying, you know, this this is no George Floyd. Uh, there were no knees on necks. There were no chokeholds. When in fact, we see video that there was exactly that. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of that time in which we were also calling for uh, Ed Troyer to step down. We were calling for him to be investigated for obstruction because you're derailing a case in the public, mm. in the public perception. Um, you're tainting people's opinion by going out there. And, and to be clear, they had the ring video. Um, plus, like the officers know what happened. So the fact that the official statement was there were no knees on necks, like there were no chokeholds, it's just not true. And maybe he didn't know that. If we give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe he didn't know that when he went out there and said that, but it became very obvious later and he never corrected himself. So from there, it was just kind of a lot of like raising awareness, um, a lot of social media stuff. We did a few um, events, obviously like COVID was pretty bad. So what we were doing in person, we were trying to limit. Um, we did do a candlelight vigil and we did a Father's Day event um, for Manny. And then we find out at a later point that we're being surveilled. And not just the Tacoma Action Collective protests, but other protests that are going on. Mm -hmm. um, we learned that they have a number of National Guardsmen and women um, on hold at any moment they can deploy them. Uh, they put a curfew out. Um, and all we were doing were, we had a vigil, you know, we're having a Father's Day celebration. This, there's a whole lot of things that are happening, but all of them are just celebra celebratory and or mourning of a life that was taken violently from our community. So the fact that we're being surveilled for that and then to find out later that Bruce Damier was using money that he redirected from COVID funds to do so is even more appalling. Um, so, you know, as the summer went on, as it turned into fall, we kept hearing, you know, oh, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. You know, they're bringing in witnesses. Oh, we want to re-interview a witness. But the whole time, like, there's no, there's supposed to be like a family liaison who's talking to the family. There's supposed to be weekly updates for the public. None of it's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, they're getting some information, but the lawyers have to prod them for it. The information they're putting out to the public is just the same uh, press release over and over again with a new date at the top. Um, we were told back in like October that we should expect something soon. We were told that in the beginning of the year. We were told that not too long ago. And then we were told again recently it, they need another four to six weeks. We found out they needed, needed another four to six weeks because the Washington State Patrol basically didn't do much of an investigation. So the Attorney General's office had to re-interview witnesses. 
masks. So people had to come in and, and discuss these traumas all over again. And now like there's video and stuff, but like everybody knows the further you get out from an event, Mm -hmm. the less reliable our memories are as humans. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're still here, it's been over a year, like you mentioned before, and we still don't have a date. We're hoping that maybe it's the end of the year or the end of the month. We're hoping that it's taking so long because they want to do the right thing and there's going to be some charges that are that are announced. But at this point, there's been so little justice in Tacoma, in Washington, so little accountability. Um, who knows? Again, that optimistic side of me is like, you know, maybe they really want to do the right thing and that's why it's taking them so long. But that part of me who has lived in America, who has observed history, um, who has been active in history as it's taking place, I just, I can't allow myself to believe that anything good is about to come. Because again, it's not justice because justice would be Manuel is still being here. But hopefully there's some closure that'll come. It's, it's, it's frustrating to hear you walk through that because essentially local law enforcement agencies have invested more energy and resources in investigating the protests about the killing of Manuel Ellis and investigating and harassing the organizers and targeting the organizers for target harassment than they actually have put into investigating the actual killing of Manuel Ellis. And it's one of these things where like, th- we, we know that we can't trust the police to investigate their own. Like we know we can't. But like, if you didn't need, if you need an example of why we can't, like, this is why we can't. Yeah, like this Tacoma, what Tacoma has been like this last year is a case study. Like, this is, if you need any type of evidence as to why police need, like, that, why we need better system of accountability for police, um, you know, this is it. Somebody should write this up for people to, like, read and study because, I mean, the missteps, the blatant disregard for human life, the covering up and like so poorly covering up. Like they were like, you know, we can we can cover this up and get away with it probably because they've done it before. So they didn't, e- they were so careless about it that they didn't even take the right steps to make sure that somebody couldn't figure this out retroactively. Like you didn't even do the work to figure out that there were these other videos out there that, show you doing exactly what you said you didn't do. And, and, you know, and like you have that, you have the surveillance, you have the officer who drove through the crowd. Uh, you have statements from the police union who are telling us to wait, but at the same time, like also trying to sway our opinion to be favorable towards them and their, and the officers they represent. Yeah. You have the fire department coming out and speaking out on behalf of the Tacoma police, which they could have just stayed quiet. But it's very weird. Like Tacoma is so, we act like such a small town and it feels that way because we all, we all kind of do know each other. Like we have these tangential relationships, but we also like, there are people who, you know, like this politician might be, you know, the godparent of that police officer's child or they might be married like the city man I think or the prosecutor is like married to a cop like there's so much intermingling of like 
people's duties because there's no separation, there's no boundary between their political and professional duties and their personal lives. And so it just leaves us in this space where people are afraid to speak up because, well, I'm not just speaking up against the Tacoma Police Department, I'm speaking up against my friend. I'm not just speaking out against the city manager, I'm speaking out against, you know, this person who bought me a great birthday gift last year, or, um, you know, these are my friends that I hang out with. And it's hard to speak up against our friends. It really is. And I get that. But like, the one thing that makes TAC work so well is that we call each other out. You know, if we are doing something harmful, we call each other out on it. If we're not acting responsibly, we call each other out on it. And it doesn't happen often because we're having these conversations before we even get to the point where we can possibly do something harmful. That doesn't mean we won't make a mistake. But when we make mistakes, we also own up to them. We try to make amends for them. And, and there just isn't enough of that. Like I remember, um, you know, there was a council member who was going to finally speak out. They were going to um, make a statement in support of the, the efforts to get justice for Manuel Ellis. And then unfortunately, Harold Moss passed away. And so this person felt, well, you know, Harold Moss just passed away and like the mayor is grieving and it just isn't the right time. And no shade to Mr. Moss. He's done, he did some great work, very prolific man and like well-respected. He also got to live a full life before he passed away. Manuel Ellis did not get that. And as much as I am sad to see people mourn the loss of somebody who had such an impact on this city, it's disrespectful to say, you know what, well, we have to put your justice on hold because the mayor is sad. We have to put your justice on hold because somebody who's done things politically in the past has passed away now. It's just not fair. And then you know what happens when people do that is they never come back around to it. That council member never said anything, not publicly not without poking and prodding. And so it's just, you have all these little layers of like, well, I wanna do this, but X. I wanna do this, but Y. And it's just, all it does is keep us in the same place. We're just spinning our wheels and, and nobody is really willing to do what it takes to put people out who are just not helping. And in fact, they're not even just being neutral. Like their neutrality, their silence, their playing both sides, it actually is stagnating us. And at some points it's taking us backwards. So it's, it's just, it's infuriating and it's disrespectful. Like, why are you in this position? Why did you want our votes? Why are you still asking us to reelect you? Why are you asking us to trust you? when you haven't given us any reason that we should do any of those things. And so it's just, it's just very frustrating. It's very disheartening. Yeah. I, I think this is a good place for a break. And then when we come back, I want to actually hear about filmmaking from you because uh, when I left town, you were working on a film and I want to hear more about that. Uh, so we'll be back. This episode of the Nerd Farmer podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro FM is a seller of audiobooks and is my choice, uh, my bookseller of choice. What I love about Libro is, is if you buy a book from Libro, uh, you can share a portion of the proceeds with, with your local bookstore. And so, for example, when I buy a book, it benefits King's Books in Tacoma. 
Um, I want to share a few of the topics and a few of the titles I listened to recently, and maybe you might want to check them out. Uh, the first one is a book called Sky Hunter by Marie Lu. Marie Lu is a young adult sci-fi writer. I first fell in love with her writing when she wrote the Young Elites trilogy. Uh, the bumper sticker on the Young Elites is, is imagine the X-Men being created during the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, sounds dope. Uh, the next one I want to recommend is called 400 Souls. It's a collection of essays that is edited by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, essentially, each one of these essays in the book is telling the story of Black America one year at a time. And so it starts with 1619 and then walks through the history of Black America uh, and some of the some of the, the, the things that black Americans had to overcome. It's frankly a sobering book and a dark book. Uh, there are a couple of times where like, I was like, I'm, I can't mess with this right now. I had to, walk, had to walk away from it. But like, that's also the history of black America. Uh, the last book I want to recommend today is called Chlorine Sky. It's written by a writer named Mahogany L. Brown. And essentially it is a book written in verse that tells the story of a young woman who basically is in love with hip hop and basketball. If you've ever read the book uh, by Sandra Cisneros, uh, The House on Mango Street, imagine the house on Mango Street updated for today and centered on hip hop culture. So if any of those sound great to you, go to LibroFM.com. If you sign up for an account and use promo code Tacoma, you will get one free book, your first book free, and then your ongoing membership will be $14.99 a month. Again, Libro FM using promo code Tacoma. All right, back to the show. And we are back. Thank you for downloading the show today. Uh, this is a labor of love that we do here at Channel 253. I am really proud of the fact that what we do on this show is we take people in the community and give them a platform to share their worldview and share their stories. And... And of all the stories of folks we've had on the show, uh, Jamika's story is very worth listening to. If you believe what we're doing here at Channel 253 and you want to support the show, you can do two things. Thing one is you can join Channel 253 as a member. A membership costs $4 a month or $40 a year, and your membership makes this work sustainable. Uh, and also your membership gets you access to our member-only podcast, Off the Record with Doug. Uh, it also gets you access to our member-only Slack, which is an always fascinating conversation. Uh, What's going on in the Slack today is a conversation about the effort to get the Blue Lives Matter vehicle, uh, sorry, the Blue Lives Matter stickers removed from the Pierce County Sheriff's Department vehicles that are patrolling for Pierce Transit. And the entire reason that story is like in the news is because one of the Channel 253 members basically uh, made the ask to Pierce Transit. And so if you want to know what's going on in Tacoma Civic Scene, uh, Channel 253 with a membership, $4 a month, $40 a year. Uh, the other way you can support the show is, is if you would like to write a review, uh, we live in, we live in an algorithm society. Like we all get fed stupid shit in algorithms. Uh, this show is one of those things. And so if you write a review for the show, it helps folks find the show. And so just think about doing both those things. All right, Jamaica, back to you. So during the break, we were talking about film. And so I think the first time I met you actually was in a conversation about film where I think Katie was either around or near somewhere. But you were working on a film project when I moved overseas. And I believe that it started off as being about motherhood, but then it's kind of evolved. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this film project? Yeah, of course. So uh, the project is called Matriarch. Um, it started out, I, I'm at the age where I was, you know, I'm considering whether or not I want to become a mother, um, whether that be via birth or adoption. Um, mm -hmm. But I tend to overthink and overanalyze. And so I was kind of like, man, I really want 
some kind of guidebook, some type of how-to of like, how do I be a parent? What do I look out for? Like, what mistakes did my parents make? My grandma make? Like, what did they make? What mistakes did they make that they learned from? What would they have done differently? How have they grown? What did they do for us as kids that really worked? What do they wish they had done? Um, what didn't work? And so on. So really, like, naturally, my research turned into an entire film project. <laughs> and um, so now it's it's about, I realized what I really wanted to learn about was um, I'm next in line, in a sense, to be the matriarch of my family. Um, I am the firstborn daughter, and my mom is my grandma's firstborn daughter. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, my grandma has always kind of been the person we look to in the family to, for various things, for holidays, for support, for um, just about anything. My mom quickly became that person. Um, I realized that in my childhood that often she was the one taking care of her siblings, um, taking care of her siblings' children, my cousins, um, and just kind of being that wealth of knowledge for people in the family to come to. Um, as I've gotten older, I have also become that person. I'm, you know, if somebody needs a place to stay, I'm on the list of the people to call. If you're in a bind and you need some help, I'm on the list of people to call. And so Matriarch was really just wanting to explore what it meant to have that role, to be next in line, uh, for succession of the matriarchal throne. Um, and you know, what it means to embrace that title and what it means to reject that title. Um, but also the multifaceted nature of it. Um, I feel like my, my mom, my grandma kind of got pigeonholed into being that person in the family and they didn't get a, enough time really to explore their identity outside of being the caretaker. Um, and as much as I don't mind to take care me, as much as I don't mind taking care of others. And in fact, I feel as though, you know, I, in a sense, I was raised to do that. Um, I have my own dreams and ambitions. And um, I really kind of resented that role growing up. And so, and I, and at times I resent it now. And it's not that I don't want to be there for my family, but I want to be there for them on my own terms. And so what I want to do with Matriarch is just to show that, you know, this system of like the person at the head of the family only being able to exist one day, like one way is not exactly true. We can, we can bring different things to being a matriarch. We can bring different things to being the head of the family. Um, and so I just want to explore the ways in which, you know, matriarchs learn what they learn, how they care for themselves, how they love, who they love, when they feel joy, um, the safe spaces they create for themselves, the sacred spaces they create for themselves, um, you know, the hardships, the triumphs. So that's, it's a docu-series. It started out as a movie, as a feature-length documentary, and it's turned into a docu-series. Um, I've created the first episode already, which is kind of a, just an intro. And then I have, um, I've started working on the next episodes. I actually got accepted into a fellowship it's the first um, cohort of the Hilltopia Impact Lens Fellowship. And so it teaches us how to engage with community and create 
content that is thoughtful, that's not um, extractive, meaning we're not taking from the communities that we're um, chronicling. And in fact, we are adding to those communities that we are um, being trauma-informed and that we are helping the process of healing and the process of growth. And so that's what I'm learning now. Um, and I'm working on the second episode of Matriarch, which will focus on joy, because I really, really, really feel that that is something that is central in my life is finding joy currently. Um, and I think that, you know, it's something that a lot of people need to see is just Black women, Black femmes, Black non-binary people um, doing their duties, but also, you know, enjoying themselves and, and being a whole person. I watched Dr. Gilda Shepard kind of work with her film since I've been down over several years. Yeah. So how long is this project going to be like inception to like, when do you see yourself finishing this project? Or is this like just an ongoing thing where you're going to chronicle the matriarchal role for the rest of your life? I, so I got the idea for this. It's probably been, I think it's been going on three years since I like initially got the idea. Um, and I've been filming for a while, um, but it wasn't until this last year that I actually like sat down, looked at the footage and started putting it together. Um, because I like to do a bunch of different things, I see myself probably working on other projects, um, possibly even before Matriarch is finished. Um, but I, in my head, I think that everything has a bit of a season. So I... I imagine at some point I will reach a point where I where I decide, okay, I'm done with this. I've covered the topics that I'm interested in covering, um, and I have told the story that I'm I wanted to tell. When that will be, I don't know. Um, in my in my head, I have currently, or not even just in my head, but also on paper, I have written down at least. I want each episode to focus on a different thing and I have at least 10 different topics. So I imagine that I will at least have <laughs> 10 episodes of Matriarch. Um, could I see this being something else and evolving into something more? Definitely. I Every time I talk to somebody about this project, um, there's a lot of interest and there's just so many stories. So I imagine that even if this project itself comes to an end, whether it's after those 10 episodes or it's after a whole nother season of 10 episodes. Um, I don't think my interest in the story and finding ways to incorporate um, the story of matriarchs into my other projects. Like I, I don't think that I'm ever going to not have that lens because it's so central to who I am and it's so central to like my experience. And when I write, when I create, a lot of it is from my own experience. So I imagine that that theme of being the matriarch of, um, you know, accepting the roles that we are given, whether we want them or not, um, will be a theme that tends to show up in my work hmm. continually. What's the, what's the runtime of episode one? Um, it's just under four minutes. So they're pretty short. They're going to be like a web series. So, um, I could, I can see them being like, maybe they'll get a little longer. Uh, but for the most part, because it's just a web series type docuseries, um, they'll probably keep that same format of probably not being any more than about five minutes. Okay. Uh, 
I, I want to pivot back to the conversation about, about policing for a moment, because one of the things that I think flew under the radar was what happened with you. And so I, I, I think that I'm not going to put you in a position to talk about your own arrest, but if you want to, you can. But just, just for, for, for the audience and for, for folks listening right now, uh, Jamika mentioned in January there, were in, there was an incident. We talked about it on this show where a Tacoma police officer drove through a crowd of people uh, because that's what police do. And he's faced no consequence as of yet, and it's still under investigation because police are investigating police, and we see this takes forever. Uh, either subsequent to that, either that evening or the next day, there was a protest event, and Jamika was targeted by Tacoma police and was jailed by Tacoma police. Jamika, correct? Uh, yeah, it was. And I would say, so the, it took place the same night, later the same night. Um, and it wasn't even like, we people planned to go out there. It was just kind of this, I mean, you know, Tacoma, if the police show up in your neighborhood, everybody's walking out their front door to watch what's happening. <laughs> like that's just, that might happen in other places, but like I've come to know, like if there's police on the block, somebody's on their porch watching. So, um, so, you know, just as an organizer, um, as somebody who's in tune with the community, I was like, man, I bet people are going to go down there. Like, and, um, and part of me was like, you know, I don't know who's going to go down there because, again, it wasn't planned. So it wasn't like somebody was like, hey, I'm going to go down there. I'm organizing this and this is what we're doing. I was just like, you know, I feel like people are going to be down there. And I feel like as somebody who has organizing experience, um, it would be helpful for for people who know how to organize a crowd to be there. Uh, so I uh, every. <laughs> Anytime I go out to a protest, I ask my partner the same question. And I say, I say, if I get arrested, will you bail me out? And he's like, of course. Um, and so he dropped me off this time. Uh, instead of driving down there, he dropped, he took me down. And, you know, it was, I wasn't, I didn't think about it. I thought about it, but I wasn't like nervous going down there or anything. I just was like, yeah, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to hang out. Um, I'm going to, you know, just keep an eye on things and then I'll probably go home. Um, and so this time when I got out the car, he was just like, be safe. And I was like, of course it wasn't this, you know, I didn't ask him if he bailed me out or anything this time. So maybe that was, maybe that was my good luck charm and it didn't, it backfired that we didn't do our, our routine. But so I got down there and I had only maybe been down there for like 10 minutes or so. And there was like, there was a lot of police around. They had the street blocked off, um, with, they had the area blocked off with crime scene tape. And then they also had multiple, streets blocked off uh with their cars and so as we're down there and people are, there's maybe some chanting going on but again it's not like an organized thing so there's not like a a group chanting in unison uh with any real direction people are just kind of standing there and some people are chanting so as we're standing there a couple of officers walk over and they're like we need you guys to move back you either need to go up to uh, commerce or you need to go down to a street or, or whatever street they wanted us to go to, but they had already blocked off so much space. And we were like, you know, we're not blocking traffic. We're not blocking any local businesses. We're just standing here. And if you needed more space, like you had plenty of time before any of us got here to widen your area with the crime scene tape. So, you know, at this point, I'm just kind of hanging out there and other people are like, yeah, no, we're not moving. Like, why do you need us to move? We're not moving. And so what really got me, um, at first I was just recording on my phone, just 
a video. I wasn't, so I was like, you know, wasn't saying much because I didn't want my voice in the background of it. But the officer said, we're trying to do an independent investigation. Now, every single officer there was a Tacoma Police Department officer. And they said, you know, and the officer who drove from the crowd was TPD. And so them saying, we're trying to do an independent investigation was a trigger for me. And I was like, you know what? The last time you guys were left to do anything on your own, Manuel Ellis was murdered and you all covered it up. So as the community, we are here as oversight. And he got mad and, and they walked away. Like the guy kind of stomped off even. Um, and so, you know, and then it's whatever. A couple minutes later, one of them on their bullhorn or their car, Pete, like, um, you know, speaker system was like, this is your final order to disperse. I guess their first order to disperse was them coming over and asking us to move a block away or so. Um, and then that's when I decided to go live and I was, I was live on Instagram. And so shortly after I started my live video, a bunch of officers and like, again, the crowd of people there, that's, there's maybe 30 people at most. Um, the amount of officers there were probably an equal number, if not a little more. Um, but all these officers walk toward us and the officer, um, the officer who came back around, he walked directly toward me was the same officer who huffed off when I told him that we were there as oversight. He immediately starts pushing me and pushing me. And I'm like, you like, don't touch me. I think I said, don't effing touch me actually. But I was like, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And he kept pushing me. He kept telling me to back up. And then I noticed that another person who was there, another organizer um, who had just come down organically was being arrested. So I started to try to turn the camera to him as he was being arrested. And I was like, you know, I have a right to film this arrest. And the officer's pushing me, but they were pushing me not toward the street. They were kind of like isolating me from the rest of the crowd. And so shortly as that was going on, and I'm trying to tell him that I'm trying to record this, this arrest, I hear another officer say, arrest her. And then suddenly, like, multiple officers lunged at me. They knocked me down. They pulled my phone out of my hand, slid it across the sidewalk. Um, multiple of them are on top of me. And pulling on me, pulling my hands behind my back. Um, eventually they stand me up and I'm like, you know, I told the crowd who I was because they were like, who are you? So we can like, let your people know that this is happening. And so I'm telling them my name. And then I was like, you know, um, what am I being arrested for? What's the charge? What do you arrest me for? Are you going to read me my rights? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay, so then they walk me through the crime scene, by the way, that they were so protective of and wanted us to move away from. Um, and so when one off, I had two officers on me, one was trying to pull me one way and the other was trying to pull me the other way. And the guy was like, stop pulling. And I was like, that's literally not me. Like, so they just weren't even like- <laughs> Tell your homeboy. Tell your yeah, homeboy. like they just weren't even like communicating with each other. And they're walking me through this crime scene that they're supposed to be independently investigating. And they take me to the side of a police car. And I'm like, are you going to tell me why you're, being, you're arresting me? Are you going to read me my rights? We'll get to it. We'll get to it. So then they start to search me. Pat, they start to pat me down. And I was like, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm on the backside of a car. Nobody can see me. It's two male officers. And I was like, I would like a female officer at least to come over here and do this or observe. And they were like, she's busy. So I had to start yelling 
that these men, I've not consented to a search and they're like patting me down and I don't feel comfortable about it. And finally she comes over and then they still, they're like pulling stuff out of my pockets. They're asking me if I have any weapons. And I'm just like, are you going to tell me why I'm even in handcuffs right now? And can you, I was like, can you loosen the handcuffs? And he was like, that's because your wrist is turned this way. And I was like, well, you turned it that way. Well, if you didn't struggle, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I didn't really have time to struggle. Um, So he literally loosened up my handcuff, like a click. So I had seen earlier in the pandemic that they weren't like for certain things, they weren't taking people to jail because of COVID. Yeah, this is the right wing talking point. All the right wingers are like, nobody's going to jail. Crime is a muck because of COVID. So yeah. So in my head, I was like, okay, they're doing all this. They're going to see what I have on me. They're going to ticket me and I'm going to be on my merry little way. But they put me in the back of a cop car along with the other protesters. So they didn't even like separate us. They just put us both in the same cop car. We get to the jail. They, I had on two masks at the time because COVID. They took mine off and put on like a, a, a washable jail issue mask. Uh, that was too big for me. My hands are still cuffed behind my back. My mask is falling down. And at one point, and at this point, we still haven't even been told why we were arrested. An officer walks past me and I was like, can you help me pull up my mask? And he was like, I'm off duty. And I was like, okay, well, you know, cool. I guess like F me then. And so they take us in, they process us. I have to like do a urine sample, which I guess was not something that they should have asked me to do. Um, they still hadn't told me why, why I was there. Uh, finally the officer was like, you know, who was processing me is like, Hey, I put the cash you had on you on your books for your commissary. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to be here that long. And he was like, well, court's not open till Monday. And I was like, is there not bail? And he hadn't even looked. He was like, oh, I guess you're right. It's a thousand dollars. And I was like, well, can you tell me what I was charged with? And he was like, it's obstruction of a public official. And so... Then while I'm getting my mugshot taken, which I smiled for, by the way. Um, <laughs> Sorry, he, that's not funny, but funny. <laughs> no, I, I did it on purpose. But so he like, two officers, one officer was like, hey, you know, like what's going on? He was like, oh, you know, some people were protesting because they're mad at the cops. And I was like, no, people were protesting. People were like out there because an officer drove through pedestrians. He was like, well, what were those pedestrians doing? Standing there? And he was like, well, you don't want to have this conversation. Not with me, young lady. And I was like, I think I do. Like, I just had an attitude because I was pissed off because I shouldn't have been there. So I was mad. And so he he got really kind of like, you don't want to have this conversation and got all huffy and, and police on me. So um, they sat me in a holding cell. Sorry, I'm laughing because you said got all police on me. That's just... <laughs> uh, he put me, they put me in a holding cell and then they put me, they put another person in the holding cell with me. We couldn't distance you know, there's no ventilation. Uh, the person wasn't very, their mask was like hanging down. So I'm just like this whole thing. Um, my partner had actually made it down to bail me out pretty quickly, like while I was still being processed. But then when I asked them how long it would take for me to get out, it was still going to be a few more hours. And I was like, it didn't even take you guys that long to get me in the system. Um, but he was like, well, at least we're not taking you over to the jail. And I was just like, I shouldn't, you know, I was like, I just shouldn't be here anyway. So, you know, they let me out. There's this whole process of like trying to figure out if they're going to charge me. I finally got something telling me that they weren't going to charge me. It took me a lot of calling. Um, The funny thing about all this, 
which was obviously not funny in an actual hilarious way. But uh, a few weeks after that, I was at a friend's house uh, for our weekly reality TV show night. And some guy just driving down the street had crashed into multiple parked cars. And mine was one of them. He hit my car and other cars so hard that he actually left his tire next to my car and kept driving. So the off, you know, police come and they do whatever they need to do with him. I can't see this person. He's down the road or whatever. But the officer comes back and he's like, so unfortunately, you know, we just ticketed the guy and sent him home because we can't take him to jail due to COVID. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, that's super interesting because barely a month ago, I was in jail for, and like this guy, like, I got the police report and they asked him if he had been drinking. He was like, he didn't smell like alcohol, but there wasn't, they need some type of special cop with like a certain training to test for they just didn't test him they didn't do a breathalyzer there's no field sobriety they didn't say send him because this is a criminal case like take him to the er and get blood tested or whatever they just were like he didn't smell like alcohol i asked him if he was drunk and he said he wasn't i asked him why he didn't stop when he hit the cars he said he did but obviously he hit like four cars and kept going so he didn't stop like just i was like this guy i didn't even ask but i was like this guy has to be white he just has to be. There's no way that a black person creating all this damage for no other reason, apparently, because he's not in medical distress. He's not drunk, according to him, according to the officer. He just hit multiple cars and caused thousands of dollars in damage. For what? But he didn't go to jail for it because COVID. But you did. Yeah. So... It was just, and I asked the officer, I was like, you know, and I don't know if the officer knows who I am or whatever, but I was like, oh, you know, how long has that been a thing? He's like, oh, you know, basically since the beginning of the pandemic. So again, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about how police have these, like, they can, they use their discretion however they want, but it's never in favor of equity. It's never in favor of a person of color. Um, And so this guy who was literally named Chad, like caused all this destruction, all this damage, and the other, his tabs were expired and the officer was like, he said he had insurance and he'll call us tomorrow with the policy number. I was like, this sounds like the Ed Troyer special. I don't know like <laughs> why he got so much leeway for, yeah. for creating so much havoc right now. So it was just a very interesting thing. And like, again, when I say that like policing in Tacoma, one, the DOJ needs to come in and investigate these, these cops. But two, like, if people like people need to pay, like because Tacoma is not a small town, people in t- police in Tacoma and politicians in Tacoma should not be able to get away with the, the things that they are doing or decidedly not doing mm. um, in the way that they are. And so it's just frustrating that there, especially in this last year, there's been all these examples of police misconduct, of brutality, of violence, because I think people think, oh, police violence is just somebody being killed. no. Police violence is me going, me being arrested and taken to jail for obstruction of a public official, but the guy who literally totaled my car along with a few others getting a ticket. It's the difference between, um, you know, the officers, you know, getting all these people coming out in their favor of like due process. But when I was assaulted, the officer came to my house and told me that, There was no point for me to go to the hospital because what evidence would they find? So, you know, there's just like the, there's just so many times in which the people of Tacoma have been harassed and 
harmed and traumatized by the Tacoma police and by the inaction of our city officials. And I think people Mm -hmm. are like, well, you know, they only kill people every so often, but that's not the only violence that we are fighting against. Their presence is violence. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's harmful and it's frustrating. I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway, and then I'll get you out of here is so you've laid out the story. You were basically targeted for arrest by law enforcement and arrested by Tacoma police in an event where a Tacoma police officer assaulted a crowd of people and the officer was allowed to go home. So the only threat to the, so even though the incident is an, a police officer driving his car through a crowd of people, the only threat in the environment apparently is you and one of the protesters. Yeah. That's obviously shady and shabby and shitty. Yes. Has anybody from the city of Tacoma, either in city government, the city council, or the police department, reached out to you and apologized? Um, yeah. I will say, okay. um, I don't should I don't know if I should say who, but um, I mean I appreciate. It. So I, I mean I I don't know I don't know if I should say who I don't know if that's a political. You don't have thing. to say who the facts. Um, but yes, you don't per- the facts. Somebody does good. Yeah. yeah, there are people who kind of expressed their dismay with it through the one person who took the time to actually reach out to me and say, "I'm sorry that happened. I am pissed off for you." Um, and is there, and I will do what I can do, but is there also anything I can do for you? So, uh, yes, one person did reach out to me. All right. Uh, Jamaica, I want to thank you for coming on and telling your story. Uh, for the record, you are now a three-time show guest, so you're also a member of the Smoking Jacket Society. Okay. I think you have the most, like, diversity in your appearances. <laughs> I think it's, like, one book club, one movie wreck, and then one, like, diary of a activists in Tacoma. And so just thank you so much for just being who you are. Uh, I want to just run through these things really fast. If people want to follow and support the work of TAC, where can they look? Um, You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram are probably our most consistently updated platforms. Uh, But yes, those are the places. And if people want to help the, the Ellis family because there's an ongoing legal fight, where can they look? Uh, so if you go to the Justice for Manuel Ellis page, I believe it might still be linked on our tag page as well, which is um, Tacoma underscore underscore action. Or the if you just search Justice, Justice for Manuel Ellis, you'll still be able to see there's a GoFundMe link um, for people to go to and, and donate. We don't, you can always just message us. TAC doesn't take any donations, but uh, we're always happy to give you the link or any other places that if you're trying to figure out where to put your money. And if people want to follow you personally and also want to see all your dope TikToks, where should they look? Uh, if you want to see all of my TikToks, you can follow me on TikTok at ODamjam. Um, I do post some of my TikToks on Instagram and um, that my handle on Instagram as well as on Twitter is ODam underscore jam. So you can follow me there. I'm on Facebook, but don't follow me there. Nah, nah, yeah, nah, 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 nah. Jamika, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated. I'll see y'all in June for brunches, hopefully, and prosecute the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. All right, Jamika, thank you much. So thank, oh, shit, Doug, edit, please. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. 
Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.